I love Owen County plays because then uh, people clap for me when I come up here. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter six, please. First Corinthians chapter six. We'll continue this morning in our study in the book of First Corinthians, entitled "Stay the Course." I did come up with a title, Sue, about 7 o'clock this morning. Was that too late to make the bulletin? I missed press time. I always struggle for some reason with doing the title. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's start reading in verse number 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Well, let's pray. Father, we come to this harsh passage. We come to this... uh, set of verses here where Paul is clearly disapproving of the people in Corinth, and I pray today you'd give us wisdom as we look at it. I pray, Father, you'd fill me with your spirits and help my mind to be focused on this topic today. I pray, Father, there'd be no distraction, and I pray, Lord, that all of us would uh, be taught of God today. Give us wisdom. Teach us. Help us to hear what we need to and uh, make changes where we need to. Help us, Lord, to learn from this, uh, this problem that was in, in the Corinthian church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I read a story about the Revolutionary War. I don't know if it's true or not. You know, you read these stories and you never know if they're true. I suppose I should go to Snopes.com on every single thing that I see, but uh, I did not. Of course, I never know if it's true just because I read it on Snopes.com. I don't know if that's any true or anything else. But anyway, story about the Revolutionary War. Apparently, during that time, there was a pastor who lived in uh, in uh, in Pennsylvania, and his name was Peter Miller. Everybody loved him, just like everybody loves the pastor here, right? Everybody loved him, Amen. except one guy, one particular guy who the story kindly does not list his name, but for some reason this one particular guy was a great enemy of Peter Miller's and made his life miserable and did everything he could to try to uh, just proclaimed that he was the enemy of this pastor. Well, eventually it came out that this guy was not only an enemy of the pastor and an enemy of the church, but it turns out that he was a traitor to his country. And so he got tried and convicted of treason and sentenced to death. Well, when Pastor Miller heard about this particular situation, he rode all the way to Philadelphia to meet with General George Washington to plead for this fellow's life. And when he pled for his life before General Washington, Washington said, well, I'm sorry, I I can't. I can't pardon your friend. And the pastor looked at him and said, friend, friend, he's the worst enemy I have in the whole world. And General Washington said, well, that puts an entirely different light on the story. If you rode a walk, he walked, if you walked all this way to uh, plead for the life of an enemy, 
well, then I think I'll grant your request. And so he pardoned him. Once Pastor Miller had the, the pardon in his hand, he took off for uh, where the, the actual execution was to take place because that was already uh, taking place. It was moving forward. It was 15 more miles. So he walked 15 more miles, and he got there just about the time they were leading this fellow up the scaffold to hang him. And as he was being led up the scaffold, he looked off and he saw uh, Peter Miller, and he said, there's that Peter Miller coming. He's coming just to gloat over the fact that uh, he's going to get to see me hung because he hated him so much. But just about that time, Pastor Miller walked up the steps of the scaffold and handed the pardon to him uh, so that he was not hung. Apparently that's a true story. And I cannot help but wonder, what effect do you think that had on the man who was pardoned? The story doesn't say, but I think we can all imagine it had some effect. In chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, we come to an important truth. And it's a truth about how we handle wrongs that are done to us. How we respond when people treat us wrongly or unfairly. The Corinthians had chosen an approach. And their approach was, we're going to take you to court. That was their approach. We're going to sue you. Now, this was written a long time ago, but it certainly sounds like it could have been written today. In America today, we live in one of the most litigious times that we have seen in this particular country. I don't have any statistics to quote, but I imagine we could all go out and find some about how the rate of lawsuits that take place here. So that was their approach. And Paul, as we see in this passage, clearly does not agree. He does not think that's the approach that we ought to follow. And he, in some very strong terms, condemns it here. Notice a couple of the things that he says. He says, I, I think he says, what kind of testimony is this? What kind of testimony is this? Do you see that in there? What kind of testimony? He starts out with another one of his incredulous statements. They're all through the book of 1 Corinthians. It makes you want to laugh when you come to one. But he says, dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. I, I think, I think we would not do any harm to the text. I think we could paraphrase that as, how dare you? I think that's what he's saying right there. He's incredulous that they would even think of doing such things. He couldn't be much clearer, much more pointed in his approach than he is in these, these eight verses here. He, he plainly is telling them Christians ought not to be taking each other to court over trivial matters. Look, look at the things he says. Verse number one, he does say, how dare you there? I, I think that's what he's saying. Verse number five, he says, I say this to your shame. That's pretty pointed. Also in verse number five, he says, how can it be? Actually, he says, is it so? But I'm paraphrasing it. How can this be? How can it be? Verse number seven, he says, it is an utter failure for you. That's pretty clear. In verse number eight, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren, exclamation point. Did you notice the exclamation point there? At least it's there in my Bible. So Paul is not happy that such a thing is occurring. He's not in agreement with it at all, and he issues strong words condemning it here. Now, if you're new to Friendship Bible Church, I want to take this opportunity to encourage you about something. I want to encourage you to go out and look at the various websites that we have. We have a website that is our primary one that Sister Sue does a wonderful job of maintaining now. And that's just www.friendshipbiblechurch.org. And you can go out there and you can find all kinds of information. There's also a blog that we have where we post various uh, happenings and things like that. And there's a, there's a mobile app that we have that you can go if you have a smartphone, things like that. But I mention it because our Constitution and bylaws are up there. And if you haven't seen them, you ought to. Especially if you're thinking about our church. You ought to go take a look at those things. And in our Constitution and bylaws, interestingly, there is this statement. In our statement of faith, which is contained therein. It says, we believe 
that Christians are prohibited from bringing civil lawsuits against other Christians or the church to resolve personal disputes. And of course, the reason we put that in there is because of this very passage. And it's interesting, isn't it, the words that are used. We said we believe that Christians are prohibited from bringing civil lawsuits against other Christians or the church to resolve personal disputes. And I think that's key that we understand there. I don't think Paul is saying here in this passage that it is, it, it is wrong for us to use the legal system ever. I don't think Paul is saying here that it is wrong in a criminal situation. That's not even discussed here. Matter of fact, the word that is used there, dare any of you having a matter against another, seems to refer to something trivial. Seems to refer to something civil. Silly little things. They just weren't getting along about so I, I don't want to go too far with this and say that we should never go to court as believers. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches here. But I do believe the point Paul is making is Christians ought not to be taking every little dispute before the courts of the world. And I think that phrase, the courts of the world, really does get to one of Paul's major concerns. What kind of testimony is this? I think he's reminding the Christian, Christians, Corinthians, that that's, that's what it's about. It's a matter of your testimony. Your testimony before the world. Twice he says it. In verse number one, he uses that phrase, before the unrighteous. You see that there? Verse number six, he uses the phrase, that before unbelievers. And again, I can't help noticing the exclamation point there. One person, Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary on this passage, said the church at Corinth was rapidly losing its testimony in the city. Not only did the unsaved know about the immorality that was going on in the assembly, but they were also aware of the lawsuits involving members of the church. We learned about that immorality last week, did we not? Chapter 5, gross immorality taking place in the church, which not only were they tolerating, they were actually celebrating. And certainly there's no doubt in our mind, is there, that, that that being known in the community was damaging to the testimony of that local church. But Paul goes on here and he says, you know what, you don't have to just have immorality in the church to have a damaged testimony. Christians bickering amongst themselves can do that just fine. And that's what was happening here. Before the unrighteous, before the unbelievers, he says. One man said it would be better to be cheated and wronged than to bring the name of the Lord Jesus into disrepute. I read a story. It was written in a book by a fellow by the name of Leonard Sweet. And let me just read it to you because it highlights this. It talks about this very thing. He says this, he said, Tom Wiles served a stint as university chaplain at Grand Canyon University in Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona. A few years ago, he picked me up at the Phoenix airport in his new Ford pickup and whisked me away to keynote a leadership conference at the university. Since I was still mourning the trading of my Dodge truck, we immediately bonded, sharing truck stories and laughing at the bumper sticker truism, nothing is more beautiful than a man in his truck. Amen. As I climbed into his 2002 Ranger for the ride back to the airport a day later, I noticed two great big scrapes by the passenger door. What happened here, I asked. Oh, my neighbor's basketball post fell and left those dents and white scars, Tom replied with a downcast voice. You're kidding. How awful, I commiserated. This truck is so new I can still smell it. What's even worse, he said, is my neighbor doesn't feel responsible for the damage. Rising to my newfound friend's defense, I said, did you contact your insurance company? How are you going to get him to pay for it? Tom replied, this has been a real spiritual journey for me. After a lot of soul searching and discussions with my wife about hiring an attorney, it came down to this. I can either be in the right 
or I can be in a relationship with my neighbor. Since my neighbor will probably be with me longer than this truck, I decided I'd rather be in a relationship than be right. Besides, trucks are meant to be banged up, so I got mine initiated into the real world a bit earlier than I expected. Paul was not worried about believers being treated unfairly. That was not his point in this passage. He was worried about exposing Christian problems before unbelievers. That was his concern. Evangelism is more important than personal justice. Warren Wiersbe said to take the problems of Christians and discuss them before the unjust and unbelievers was to weaken the testimony of the gospel. Hmm. What kind of a testimony is this? I wonder, church, do we care about our testimony that much? Do we care about our testimony, the testimony of the Lord's church, our personal testimony, more than our personal injustices? We ought to. We ought to. The second argument he makes here, he says, don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? Interestingly, Paul uses that phrase, don't you know, six times in the book of First Corinthians. I think it's used a couple of other times outside of this book. I didn't write those down, but I think six times here, and that's almost the only times it's used Anywhere in the New Testament, that that construction, don't you know? Each time he's reminding them of something that should have been common knowledge. Now remember who he's talking to here. He's talking to this church that prides itself on their wisdom. He's talking to this church that prides themselves on their superior spirituality. So I think Paul's digging a little bit here. I think, don't you know, you guys who are so spiritual, don't you know? But he says that here. Don't you know? And what he's saying is, this is something that's common knowledge. I obviously taught this to you before. And you ought to know this. That's what he's saying. And look what he says they ought to have known. Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? Don't you know that the world will be judged by you? Verse number two. Isn't that interesting? Verse number three, he says, don't you know that we shall judge angels? Verse number three. Hmm. Paul had apparently taught those truths enough that he thought it ought to be obvious and Something they should have been well aware of as believers. And as I read that and I thought through that this morning, I thought to myself, do we know that? Do you know that? Do you know, church? Don't you know, church? It ought to be obvious to all of us that we will judge the world. That we will judge angels. Do you know that? I struggle with this. This is a difficult passage. It really is. I struggle with it. The fact is, the Bible does refer to a judgment yet to come for angels. In the next to the last book of your Bible, the little book of Jude, verse number six, it says, The angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. In Second Peter chapter two and verse four, we read, If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And so the Bible does indicate there's a judgment for angels, and the Bible the Bible also indicates that saints The saved are somehow going to participate in that judgment as well as the judgment of the world. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 22, until the ancient of days come, came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you in the resurrection, or in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Luke chapter 22 and verse 30, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Those two verses seem to be specifically spoken to the apostles and specifically about the apostles. 
But then Revelation 3.21 says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And so, I don't have all the answers on this. There's an awful lot of questions. Maybe more questions come out of it than answers. But the fact is, the fact is, there's something there about saints are going to judge the world. And saints are going to judge angels. In spite of the questions all this brings to mind, they do tell us one thing clearly. We will somehow be involved in the judgment of far greater disputes than those the Corinthians were wrestling with here. And I think that was Paul's point. He was making the point that those tasked with judging the world shouldn't have to go outside their own courtroom to find judges competent to handle their own little disputes. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? Currently, there's a TV program on. Some of you may have seen it. It's called, Who Do You Think You Are? And it traces the genealogy of various celebrities. It's a somewhat interesting program. But that's what Paul's asking. Don't you know who you are? And I think his don't you know who you are argument comes to a head in verse number four. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I think what he's basically saying there, and that's a hard verse, but I think what he's basically saying there is the least qualified believer is better equipped than the most qualified unbeliever to judge issues between church members. Warren Wearsby says, this is a difficult verse to translate. He's talking about verse 4. As suggested by the widely varying English renderings, and probably some of you are holding the NIV or some other translation that takes a completely different approach with that verse. But the basic meaning is clear. When Christians have earthly quarrels and disputes among themselves, it is inconceivable that they would turn to those least qualified, unbelievers, to resolve the matter. The most legally untrained believer who knows the word of God and is obedient to the spirit is far more competent to settle disagreements between believers than the most experienced unbeliever, void of God's truth and spirit. So don't you know who you are? And then finally, his third argument is this. You can win a battle, but still lose the war. You can win a battle, but still lose the war. Look at verse number 7. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. The first half of that verse is interesting. It is an utter failure for you. Notice he doesn't call it a sin. That's not the word sin. He could have called it a sin. He could have said that. He didn't. He didn't say it was a sin. He said it's a failure. And what I think, I think what he's saying is this. Whether you win in the secular courts or not, you've lost. Whether you succeed in your claims against fellow believers or not, you've failed. Billy Halliday was a jazz singer. Some of you might be fans of Billy Halliday. I don't know. Back in the early 20th century. One time she said this. She said, sometimes it's worse to, fight to, sometimes it's worse to win a fight than to lose. I think that's what he was saying. You might win in court, but you're really losing. You might succeed in court, but you're really failing. You see, Jesus told us how we're supposed to live. Jesus said we should forgive our brothers who trespass against us. Didn't he say that? Isn't that how he taught us to pray? In the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew chapter 5, he said, You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. 
Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And so I think Paul was reminding them, you know, you might win in court, but you're losing because you're failing at obeying the commands that Jesus has given to us. You might win the battle, but you're losing the war. And so there's three, three different arguments that Paul pulls out of here. That maybe you might see some more, but three different things that he says that basically condemn this apparently commonplace practice in Corinth of taking believers to court over trivial matters. He said such a practice marred their testimony. He said it made a mockery of the fact that these were believers and dwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and more than competent to handle their own affairs. And he also said it resulted in, even though it appeared, it, even though it appeared to result in victory, it was because it was disobedience to Christ's teachings, it was truly a failure and a loss, a defeat. And that brings us to what I think are the strongest of Paul's arguments here. And there in verse number seven. And with this we'll be done. Notice verse number seven. He asks two very piercing questions here. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Well, we ought to meditate on those verses. Why do we not rather accept wrong? Why do we not rather allow ourselves to be cheated. I think he's saying here that Christians should simply care more about the gospel and about reaching others than our own personal issues. We should care more about the cause of Christ and about the testimony of the church than our own petty disputes. One man said those related by faith needed to settle their disputes like brothers, not adversaries. How do brothers settle their disputes? We have an example. We have an example. Matter of fact, in in, uh, book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 13. Remember the story of Abram and Lot? Anybody remember the story of Abram and Lot? I love it. It's just, it's just it's a perfect fit here. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, please, let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you. Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. If you go to the right, then I will go to the left. What an illustration. Why not rather accept wrong? Why not rather let yourselves be cheated? Christians have been forgiven everything. And so we ought to be examples of people who will forgive anything. Turn with me to one passage of scripture that we need to see. Matthew chapter 18. Turn over there with me. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, and let's read verses 21 down through 35. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. 
So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. And then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to each of you, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Why do we not rather accept wrong? Why do we not rather allow ourselves to be cheated? How easy is it to forget how much we've been forgiven? It's amazing. But we do. I read a story about Moravian missionaries who went to the Eskimos, and when they were talking with the Eskimos and trying to uh, discuss the concepts of the Bible, they came to the word forgiveness, and they found out that the Eskimos had no word for forgiveness. And so they had to make one. They compounded a bunch of other words together. And here's the word they came up with. Pardon my pronunciation. Here's the word they came up with. It's something like, Isumaji Jujungneinermik. There's 24 letters in that word. Isu Maji Ju Jung Something like that. But you know what it is? It is a combination of a bunch of words that they tried to get the concept of, of, of forgiveness in. And here's what it means. It means not being able to think about it anymore. That's a pretty good picture of forgiveness. Not being able to think about it anymore. Why do we not rather accept wrong? Why do we not rather allow ourselves to be cheated? I think that's the main point Paul is trying to make in this passage of scripture. One more story. One more story. During the Korean War, I read a story about a South Korean Christian. He was a civilian. He wasn't involved in the war, but he was a Christian. And they decided that they were going to kill him. The communists arrested him and ordered him shot. But when when they were preparing to shoot him, the young communist leader who was to carry out that sentence discovered somehow, I don't know how, that this Christian was involved with a, an orphanage and took care of young kids. And so the guy didn't want to kill him. So he said, fine, I'll kill your son instead. And so he took his 19-year-old son and shot him right before the eyes of this Christian man. Well, of course, later the fortunes of war changed and things were different. And uh, eventually that the United Nations forces came in and, and uh, took over and captured that young communist leader and sentenced him to death. Until that Christian, whose boy he had shot, came along and pleaded for his life and said, give him to me. I'll take him. He was young. He didn't know what he was doing. He was just operating under orders. And so the story says the United Nations forces granted the request. The father took the murder of the boy into his own home and cared for him. And today, that young communist leader who shot that man's son is a Christian pastor. And I wonder, I wonder, how many lives have been saved? How many souls have been saved by Christians, such as that South Korean believer, truly living their faith to the point of personal inconvenience and even personal loss? How many people are in heaven today and will be in heaven when we get there because of that? And I wonder how many others will be in hell because what they see in Christians is just the opposite. Bickering, fighting, pegging each other to court over silly little things. One man said, one of the greatest tests of the degree of a person's transformation into the likeness of Christ is his reaction to the one who does evil to him. It's all through the Bible, shot through its pages. 
You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Proverbs 20 says, Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. Proverbs 24, Do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Romans chapter 12, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. First Peter chapter 3, Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And that's just a few. The Corinthians had it wrong. They had it wrong on a variety of fronts. And so let's learn from them. Let's learn from them this morning that it's better to accept wrong. Let's learn from them that often it's best to let ourselves be cheated. Let's learn that Christians should be willing to suffer personal loss, that others might come to Christ, that others might be saved.